0: Just a reminder that the Dear Prudence podcast happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini-episode every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash prudipod.
1: Dear
0: Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence.
1: Dear Prudence. Dear, Prudence. Dear, Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again?
0: Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me this week in the studio is Cecilia Corrigan, an award-winning writer and performer in Brooklyn. Her poetry collection, Titanic, was released in 2014. Since then, she's released the short film Crush and web series, Le Balm. Cecilia is currently working with Bedlam Theater on an adaptation of Moliere's The Misanthrope, although I imagine that's not going to get staged anytime in the immediate future. Uh, (laughs) how's that going?
1: Well, we'll see. (laughs) It will happen at some point, I imagine, if, you know, people return to life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at some point. Right now, kind of all we have to do is look at squirrels and hope for the best.
1: Exactly. It sounds
0: like you've had a great squirrel situation where you're at right now. How many squirrels have you seen today?
1: Um, I'd say about four. (sighs) Like four that I can definitely identify by, you know, their markings. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh God, you're already at the stage where you can identify them by their markings. I'm so jealous. Yeah. I pretty much just have the one. And as far as I can tell, it has no markings at all. <laughs> this is, I think, as light as our conversation's gonna get for a little while because our first few questions. That's not true. We have one great one about a borrowed pan. That's nice. Yeah. I'm glad I included something low stakes to break one. it all up. Yeah. But um yeah, there's there's no good segue. It's just let's go from something nice to something sad. And that's our first letter. I will read it because it's too much to make you read it. Um, Okay. The subject line is, my husband calls me by his dead wife's name in bed. Dear Prudence, my husband Dan lost his first wife, Laura, to cancer a few years before we met. He's always been upfront with me about how much he loves Laura and how her family would always be a part of his life. I understood and accepted this, but while I've never felt threatened by Laura, I'm now struggling with something Dan does a few times a year. Calls me by her name during sex. The first few times it happened, he was horrified and deeply apologetic. Sometimes he doesn't realize that it's happened until I tell him, when he's once again deeply apologetic. He says, and I try to believe him, that he isn't thinking of Laura, that it just comes out. The breaking point has been that we've recently had our first child and are starting to be sexually intimate again for the first time in months. He recently called me by Laura's name, and I lost my temper. I told him, I never wanted to have sex with him again, and that if he ever called me by Laura's name again, I'd leave. Neither of those things were constructive or true. But the result is that Dan's been so ashamed that he hasn't even accepted my apologies. I don't know how to go forward. I feel like I'll die if he calls me Laura again. And sometimes, in bad moments, I compare my marriage with him to her marriage with him, which I've never done before. I don't know what to do. (sighs) Yeah. This one is obviously deeply sad. I I feel for both of them. I I think sometimes I hear from people where one person is clearly not trying to help, but it it does seem like they both hate this, right?
1: Yeah. Nobody's like the bad guy here. It's just a a really, I I also totally understand why the, the writer feels the way she does. It's really, it's really a sticky, sticky wicket here.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So this does to me feel like one of those situations that marriage counseling was really designed for, especially given that like you guys just had your first kid. I imagine you're already pretty sleep deprived and and overwhelmed. So things feel really high pressure.
1: And super vulnerable too. I mean, I've never gone through that, but from what I understand, it's it's like a really difficult thing to sort of transition back into the romantic aspects of your partnership after having a kid. So it mm-hmm. seems like that, you know, it makes sense that that would be the breaking point. I also, I just wanted to say reading this, I was, I think the person who's writing is really self-aware. And so I think there is a really good chance that like a conversation could be productive because you know, obviously they're, they're lashing out because they've had it, but it's also clear that they understand like the difference between, like they say that it wasn't constructive or true and having that self-awareness,
0: I think is a good sign. Right. And, and I think for both of them to kind of be aware, there's some things that we've both said that we can't magically undo with an apology, but we also want to figure out how to go past that moment rather than just always flinching away at the pain, right? Like, Dan does not consciously want to say his dead wife's name during sex. He doesn't want to uh, make his current wife feel this like degree of put off. And yet he has done it. And the, the letter writer also doesn't actually want Dan to feel so ashamed that he can't, like, have a conversation about this or never try to have sex with her again. But she also said that thing. And I think that's something that therapy can be really helpful with because you're both at this stage of like, I said something I don't know how to undo. It was partly unconscious or partly subconscious, but it's happened. And now I don't know how to work around it.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, assuming that it is really unconscious and totally involuntary, that is actually one of the things therapy is really designed for is, Mm. you know, like sometimes I think people do compulsive behaviors because they haven't really moved them from the unconscious part of their brain into the conscious part. And by talking about it, you know, whatever, like whatever feelings are around this for him that are making him act in this compulsive way, I think that might actually allow him to maybe stop the behavior or at least be more mindful of like triggers. Um, But it's it's also just like, oh, that's that's rough.
0: Yeah. And it's hard because I think the like previous strategy that the letter writer had adopted was because it's unconscious, I'm not allowed to, not, not exactly like I'm not allowed to, but like I can't really be mad or I can't really take it seriously. And so the reason there was that like blowout moment was because she could no longer continue doing that. And I think it's okay to say it can both be true that he's not saying this maliciously to hurt me. And it's also true that it hurts. Both of those things are real at the same time. So- yeah, all of that makes a lot of sense. In addition to the therapy, which I think would prove really helpful, like there's also, I think, logistical things you could do. Like you can gag someone during sex. That might not necessarily be your favorite dynamic. Um, It doesn't have to turn into a whole, like now we do a sexy gagging thing, but like maybe talk about that as a possibility Um, or if not like a physical restraint, a, a sort of agreement of like, Uh, we're going to test out a a, a type of sex where like there's only very particular forms of speech that are permitted or maybe a type of sex where we talk our way through it. Like we're going to consciously go into really specific dirty talk that's not necessarily our go-to but that like sets the rules of a conversation we're going to have while we fuck.
1: Yeah, I think that's like, I I don't know what this what their sex life is like uh, because they don't give any context. But if -hmm. that's sort of part of their practice, there's definitely a way of working with like kink and boundaries and so on that could allow you to, you know, work around this, especially if you are able to talk about it and figure out that it really is like frustrating and upsetting and understandably really painful, but not fundamentally a comment on, you know, the emotions
0: or like the intimacy at the core of your relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, get a gag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, to be clear, I don't mean that the kind of conversation you should have is like about his Late wife. I don't mean that you have to eroticize that dynamic. I just mean truly any kind of sex talk while you're having sex might prove helpful. But I think the fact that you both want the same thing is a good thing. You both feel stuck at a different point. You both feel shame. You both feel regret. You both feel remorse. That's really painful, but it's also kind of hopeful because it means that you're pretty much on the same page. And I do believe that if you both want the same thing and you both take it seriously, you will be able to make progress, even if that progress isn't immediate or overnight. And in the meantime, if you just want to like get back in the saddle sex-wise, absolutely, you know, wrap a handkerchief around both of your mouths and go at it in total silence. Maybe play music really loudly. I don't know. But there's 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 logistical options as well, not just therapeutic ones.
1: Yeah. And good luck. I'm yeah. sorry.
0: Good luck. Okay, Cecilia, this next letter is all you. (sighs) And so you get to read it.
1: The subject is, um, I don't trust the cops, but I think I need to call them. Dear Prudence, I'm wary of the police in my city. Members of the force have shot unarmed civilians several times over the past few years, including during a wellness check. I have also come to realize since the quarantine began that domestic violence is occurring next door. I live in a large apartment building and I've never met my neighbors. The first time I heard screaming and crashing, but the second time I heard a woman begging a man to stop hurting her, he screamed obscenities back at her. I'm ashamed to admit I froze and did nothing. Both these incidents happened within a week of each other and I fear it will happen again. I don't know what to do but call the police. At the same time, I know nothing about the couple next door, and I genuinely worry about what might happen if they're people of color, as were the cases with all of the aforementioned police shootings. The case with the wellness check has stuck with me the most because that person's relatives had the best of intentions, but somehow still ended up dead. I wasn't raised to trust law enforcement, and now I'm worried my bias against them could allow the abuse next door to continue. I would appreciate whatever
0: guidance you can offer." So this one's obviously painful and heavy. Part of the reason that I wanted to include it this week um, is that last week I had two questions from people who were thinking about calling the police in really different sets of circumstances. um, Both of which were essentially like uh, writing in to say I'm a white person living in a largely non-white, rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. I'm uncomfortable about something that my neighbors are doing that is not immediately dangerous to me, but I'm so uncomfortable at the idea of talking to them and I fear them so much that I kind of just want to call the cops. And it was a sort of like, I want to outsource my discomfort with the idea of talking to a non-white person by just sending the police in. So I came down pretty hard in those situations of like, um, not only should you not do this, but your impulses are really dangerous here and I want you to reevaluate the way that you gauge threats Um, because I think they're um, influenced more by racism than by reality. So this one felt really different just in the sense of, um, I I think this person is both right to be wary uh, of calling the police. And I also understand why they feel like, well, what do I do? This is really serious. This is not a frivolous, uh, this is not something that you can just like work out by like having one chat with your neighbor.
1: No. And I think that like we are hearing that domestic violence is way up since the quarantine started and we're all kind of, you know, especially in cities pressed together, sort of really, you know, living right up against one another's domestic situations. So if it's happened, what, twice already, it's, you know, probably going to happen again. Um, And I mean, my instinct, and tell me if this is, uh, sounds right to you, but my instinct was sort of, maybe there's a, a hot like a, there's the domestic abuse hotline um, that you can call, or maybe there's another professional uh, like a therapist, or there's plenty of hotlines that maybe you could call and ask their advice about how to handle it. Um, and I think there's like an intermediary because st- I have seen those cases too, and it does really um, it's it's really disturbing. And and I think you're right to hesitate, um, but I think I think this might be a situation where thinking through with a professional who specializes in domestic violence
0: uh, could be useful? I don't know. What do Mm -hmm. you think? Yeah, that was exactly my thought too, um, was as you yourself say, letter writer, you know that there is a chance that if you call the police, somebody could end up dead. Um, Somebody who is either a victim of domestic violence or who is a bystander to domestic violence. And I think you're right to take that really, really seriously. I, I I, don't want to, in this situation, shut the door completely on the possibility of calling the police. Although, again, I, I think that that's not a step you should take first, second, or even third. So I mostly just want to say I don't feel as confident here saying absolutely not. Don't ever consider calling them in the way that I have in previous letters. So I'm right there with you. I would say first There's the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is 1-800-799-7233. There's also the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is 1-800-656-HOPE. There's websites like womenslaw.org where there's like drop-down menus to select a state and find a list of programs that offer help or referral to victims of abuse throughout the state. Um, And so that I would say is absolutely, that's the first thing I would recommend this person do. Find out local resources, go through the national hotline if you have to, or look up ones that exist immediately nearby, um, and then find a way to introduce yourself. I understand if you don't feel comfortable, you know, you don't say whether or not you live alone, I think. Uh, And I don't know if you're a woman as well. You might not feel safe or comfortable introducing yourself to this guy, which, you know, I think is a real and a legitimate concern. But uh, if you ever see her out and about by herself and you would like to introduce yourself, I think that would be potentially helpful and again, I realize like you don't want to like rush up to her in the hallway and say like hi, I'm your neighbor. I called the national domestic assault hotline for you like I, I realize these are all difficult and imperfect solutions too but if there's any way that you can establish any kind of um even just like nodding acquaintance relationship with her and bring up the fact that if she ever needs help, getting to a safe place that you would be available to help her, I think that would be a really, really good first step.
1: Um, yeah, I think if the wow. opportunity comes up to do that, uh, I think one of the things that can happen is, is uh, I mean, this is such a tricky situation. And, and I mean, like, obviously, it's a horribly upsetting situation, but this is a conversation that I think, you know, culturally, we're only just starting to have in a serious way. Uh, and that's something that was really just not talked about. So I think there's still, uh, you know, which is like what to do in circumstances where there is physical abuse and domestic violence, um, all that stuff that is now kind of part of our conversation about responsibility to one another as human beings. Um, So it's great that you're like thinking seriously about it instead of, you know, making a, a really quick decision one way or the other. And I think that one of the things that I do know can happen is people feel very alone and very ashamed when they're in these kind of circumstances. So even just if you get the opportunity to be neighborly and, um, you know, if you if you do decide to sort of just like wait and see and then have an action plan about exactly what you're going to do if it happens again, um, just kind of extending a sense of, um, you know, if you meet this woman in the hall, that she's not alone and, um, you know, you're all quarantining, et cetera. So if she needs anything, you're just a wall away. I think she will hopefully get the picture.
0: Yeah. I I wish I had a better, clearer kind of step-by-step, um, plan to offer, but I think reaching out first yourself to local women's shelters and the National Domestic Abuse Hotline to explain the situation, ask for advice, ask for resources. That will help you start to think through what your options are. Um, And then I think if at any point you you want or need to put calling the police on your plan, I think to ask yourself the questions— what would I feel? What would it be like if I called the police and they ended up killing somebody? Because that is a real, that's not a bias. That's true. That happens. The police do that. Um, You know, there's also some evidence to suggest that uh, domestic violence is actually higher among the families of police officers than the general population. So, you know, it's also very true that you would be calling a couple of domestic abusers to show up. Again, that doesn't mean that I I can't say if you call them, I promise you nothing will happen and that woman's life will only get worse. But neither can I promise you, you know, if you call 911, a bunch of really helpful guys will show up and make sure that she's okay. Like, that's part of why this is really complicated. And I think it will be good for you to seek out um, as much specific advice as possible from people who work with victims of domestic abuse regularly and know how to act with the victim's safety as the sort of highest priority. And I'm just really sorry, and I wish you the best. Please write back if um, you are able to make any contact with her, if you're able to speak to her in any way. I would love to know just how you're doing. And and also just look after yourself, because I imagine that would also be very emotionally upsetting and wearing to know, am I going to hear somebody beating a woman as I try to fall asleep tonight? That's, that's taxing as well. Hi, everyone. Daniel M. Lavery here, also known to many of you as Dear Prudence. And I'm asking you to consider becoming a Slate Plus member this month if you're able to. Slate has been affected, like many other companies, by the recent economic downturn and really could use the additional support of listeners. That support that comes through Slate Plus memberships helps us to keep the show going. And you'll get access to additional extra bonus weekly questions and answers, plus regular behind-the-scenes chats with Nicole Cliff of Care and Feeding. You can sign up at slate.com slash Thanks for listening. Okay, um, let's move on to our next question, which is a little bit more simple, a little bit more straightforward. Uh, the subject is recouping my pandemic, which I just want to say was the title when I got the question. I did not put that pun in. Dear Prudence, in early March, I loaned a pan to my friend who lives in the next town over. It was once my late mother's, and it means a lot to me. For obvious reasons, I haven't seen this friend in person since the pan drop-off. Is it tactless to arrange for a socially distant drop-off to return it? I really want this pan back. My friend doesn't really take great care of things. Lots of things get mysteriously broken, lost, etc. And I don't feel confident that I can wait until June and just hope I'll actually get the pan back. On the other hand, my friend lives with her elderly mother, and I'd feel terrible if my pan pickup seriously affected the mother's health please help. Hmm, I'm struggling to imagine a way in which, uh, telling your friend, please leave the pan, uh, you know, outside your front door, 20 feet away and I'll drive by and come grab it. I I don't think that that would endanger your friend's mother's health.
1: Oh yeah. That's, that's really smart, Danny. I didn't even think of that. (laughs) Yeah. If you have access to a car, which I mean, if, you know, if you have, then that would be a really, really easy and you say pickup. So yeah, you do. Um, there should be no problem with that.
0: Yeah. Or, or even if you don't have a car to say like, to like schedule something and say like, I'll call you when I'm five minutes away and then you can run outside and set it down 20 feet in front of your house. And then I'll call you to confirm when I've picked it up, you can wave at me through your front window. There's no contact there. So there's no way it would endanger the mother's health.
1: Yeah. I don't think there should be any problem unless there's something about the friend that we're not picking up on that they, you expect them to react uh, strangely to this. But I think that it, there shouldn't be an issue with this pan.
0: Yeah. Uh, handoff. <laughs> should be pretty simple. My only advice, I guess, would be like uh, just rather than say like I need it today because it may be that your friend is very busy or very like stressed out caring for their mother. Uh, so I I think I would just say like, hey, I feel a little goofy asking about this because I know we all have 20 more important things to deal with right now. But I'd really like that pan back. It belonged to my mother. It's actually really important to me. Is there a time this weekend that's good for us to schedule a distant drop-off? And then you can list like these three times are good for me. Do anything work for you so that that way you're not making them think of a time. Um, but you're giving them a couple of options.
1: Yeah, and maybe don't notice that they're—they uh, tend to lose or damage items when you're setting this up. And I think you should be fine.
0: <laughs> you don't have to bring that up right now. That doesn't need to be the reason. You, even if your friend was great about taking care of other people's objects, if if someone's had a pan of yours for a month and a half, it's absolutely fine to say I'd like that pan back.
1: Yeah, everybody's cooking at home more, you included.
0: Yeah. You need your wares. I, I think we solved this one. I think we've, mm-hmm. we've given all the advice we that need. That was to. an easy one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope you appreciated it because we're going back into thornier territory. And it's your turn to read, I think. <laughs> all right.
1: Um. This one, the subject is a friendship ending mistake with a question mark. Dear Prudence, two days ago, I was feeling extremely short of breath and had a fever. In a panic, I went to the hospital to get tested for coronavirus. I waited for several hours and didn't get tested because I didn't meet the hospital's testing criteria. On the way home, I stopped at the grocery store to stock up on flu supplies. I wore a mask, gloves, etc., and was very careful with social distancing. However, upon returning home, I felt a crushing guilt over potentially exposing the shoppers and employees to coronavirus. I asked my lifelong best friend whether I'd made a big mistake. She responded kindly but firmly. What I did was irresponsible and that I shouldn't go out in public for at least 14 days. I snapped back at her that I had to do the grocery store run because I live alone and am low income. I couldn't buy flu supplies two weeks ago because I lived paycheck to paycheck. She is wealthier and doesn't, uh, generally doesn't understand my economic struggles. She lashed out at me for making about money instead of public health. We haven't spoken since Prudy. Who's at fault here? I already felt horribly guilty and didn't need her coming down on me like that. Should I just have not told anyone what I've done? What's the best way to repair this?
0: Hmm. Yeah, this, this is, is yeah, this is a lot. Um, I, rather than establishing who's at fault here, which I think is is a kind of brittle question. Um, I think I want to instead focus on the question, what's the best way to to repair this? Because that I think is a better question than whose fault was it? How much fault? What do they need to do as penance, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think also like just in my own experience of since this quarantine started, think people, these kind of interactions are happening a lot. I've been noticing from myself and from other people I talk to, like um, emotions are running high and we've just, we've never, nobody really is at fault here. Because it's like we've just never dealt with this situation before and nobody is completely clear on what the what the right course and boundaries are. And everybody is just scared and frustrated.
0: Right. Right. And so I think it's important and necessary to balance um, what are things that we can do in order to protect and safeguard public health. And then also what are we what can we do to make sure we don't try to become cops or, or try to work out our own anxiety by saying, that's the bad person. They made everything bad. I'm the good person. If everyone behaved like me, we'd all be safe. Um, mm-hmm. Totally. So I, I will say, I, I think in terms of like where I think you might have gone wrong is you, uh, in terms of setting up a kind of emotional situation you, you didn't actually want, you said, I didn't need her coming down on me like that. That said, you did ask your friend – Did I make a mistake? Yeah. And your responses, your friend's response, you say, was kind. So if you don't want someone to tell you kindly they think you did something wrong, don't ask them to tell you. You really, I I don't think, I I think it's understandable that you feel frustrated that she doesn't take your financial circumstances into account very often. That makes sense to me. But to say, hey, do you think I made a mistake? And hear, yes, I love you, but I think you behaved wrongly. And then get really upset, you know, I don't need this right now. You, You literally asked for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's true in times of pandemic and not. Uh, and I've definitely been on both sides of that, where when you feel bad about something and ask your friend for reassurance and don't get the unconditional love that you're looking for, it can definitely lead to this kind of tension. But probably, and maybe part of you knew that she would, I don't know. Sometimes I think we go to people who we know will, when we're feeling guilty, who we know will like respond the way that we need someone to respond. Um, yeah. And I I actually don't even think that, I wouldn't, as you say, come down hard on you about this. Um, I think that it's we are we are like not getting clear guidance even from our government about what's appropriate. It's all kind of word of mouth. I mean, there are definitely sources of information out there, but I understand um, the choices you made. I think it's just um, I think this is a situation where what you can take responsibility for, like like Danny, you're saying is. Um, you know, I shouldn't have put you in the position of justifying my actions um, when I had questions about them myself. And maybe you need to take a beat to sort of get yourself together. And hopefully, I I do really hope that you don't get sick or sicker um, and then have that conversation with her. But if she's your lifelong best friend, I, I think you'll be okay if you focus sort of on The conversation and what moves you both made versus, like, who's right and who's wrong.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I I think to be uh, reasonably gentle with yourself, um, but not so gentle that you're unable to acknowledge, I could have behaved differently, is important. Like, you can be gentle with yourself, but you don't have to be, like, a constant marshmallow to yourself. Um, Striking a balance there, I think, is important. So, you know, in terms of repairing things with your friend, there's probably a bigger conversation to be had about finances and um, understanding. If you don't feel prepared to have that conversation right now, you can kick that can down the road a little bit. You two have been lifelong best friends. You can have that conversation maybe when tensions aren't running quite so high. But I, I do think the most important thing to do right now is to just say, I realize I put you in a kind of impossible situation. Your response was kind. I, I really was just looking for reassurance in that moment. So it wasn't fair of me to ask you a question and then get mad at you for answering it. I think that's kind of all you have to do right now. If you want to have a bigger conversation about money at another time, you can maybe put a little like donkey's tail at the end of this conversation of like, I do realize some other issues came up for me around like money and living paycheck to paycheck. I also think I'm maybe not like emotionally equipped to have that conversation right now, but I'd love to talk about that with you maybe in a couple of days or a couple of weeks if you're available to hear it.
1: I think I think that totally makes sense. Like, get the conversation back on. I would say get it on sort of friendly ground again. Deal with this if, if you guys aren't speaking and this has sort of left this big bruise. Um, you know, you can, you can definitely, I think, address that by taking responsibility for asking her. And then... Uh, as time rolls on, this could be, I don't know, I think there's conflicting, I have conflicting impulses about having that conversation, because part of me wants to say, don't have any um, long-standing, loaded conversations about issues that are in a close relationship right now, because it's just like a pressure cooker, and yeah. everybody's sort of together, but on the other hand, uh, people, i part of me also feels like people do have more time Um to talk now. <laughs> and, you know, we're we're sort of focusing on, you know, if, if you guys get into that and if that's, you know, if you naturally flow into that conversation, um, but make sure you know, make sure you know how you do feel about it first. It sounds like you're pretty clear, but I, I think the financial thing sounds like it's a source of tension and knowing exactly what it is that you want to say to her before you get into that is going to make it easier for you to express what you mean to say and not something that you don't mean in
0: the moment. Right. And I know we're, we're getting a little, uh, running low on time for this particular question. So I'll just kind of end with this one thought, which is, um, again, I don't say this because I want you to just beat yourself up, but I, I wonder if one opportunity that you might have pursued in that moment, um, instead of, going to the store kind of in a panic and then feeling terrible about it is I wonder if you could have paused and reached out to some of your friends who were not experiencing possible symptoms and said, here's my situation. I just went to the doctor. I couldn't get a test. I'm not sure whether I'm ill with coronavirus, whether I'm ill with something else, whether I'm feverish and having a panic attack on top of it. Um, I really need some flu supplies, but I'm concerned about going in a public space right now. Is anyone around today? Could anyone go pick me up the following medications? And that's not necessarily a perfect solution. I realize too, when you're in a panic, it can be really, really hard to think clearly. So I I wanna acknowledge that too. But that might have been one different way you could have um, acknowledged that particular uncertainty. And maybe in the future, if you do want to try to stay at home for 14 days, To whatever extent you may be able, that may not be possible depending on what your work is or depending on what your situation is. But if you do want to try that, now might be a good chance to lean on your friends and say, is anyone available to do this? I've recently been symptomatic and I'm concerned about transmission. Maybe give people the opportunity to be there for you. And I hope that that helps. My last word is just, you know, this was a difficult situation. This is not going to be something where you will ever be able to establish with perfect like clarity, whether or not you gave someone something or didn't. So I don't think it will be too productive to focus on a situation where you kind of did the best you could in a bad moment. To whatever extent you are able to eventually let this particular fear go, I think that would be good. It's already over. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Make up with your friend, stay inside for a while. Yeah. Be well.
0: Yeah, good luck. Uh, we've got, you know, I think kind of the theme of these two letters right now is like escalation, and and I wanted to try to help people find opportunities for de-escalation. So the subject of this letter is not your dog, dear Prudence. My sister begged our parents for a therapy dog since she was quote unquote sad. She refused to see a doctor, but her perceptions counted more than reality. She dumped the dog when she left for college. I ended up doing most of the training and taking care of the puppy. My sister would demand affection from the dog during school breaks, but never walked him. I graduated high school and took my dog with me when I moved out. My sister knew this and never did anything about it for years until she got dumped and moved home. Now she is depressed and quote, wants her puppy back. My parents expected me to just give up the dog. I challenged my sister. If the dog ran to her, it could be hers. Well, we stood an equal distance apart and the dog ran to me my sister started crying, dripping snot, and screaming. My father accused me of setting my sister off, and I just told him this was crazy, and that my sister was crazy and needed professional help. I took my dog home. Now my parents and my sister are narrating a story of me, quote, stealing a dog I have taken care of for three years and humiliating my sister. They don't like that I refuse to roll over. Sis is, quote, sick in their own words. So why isn't she seeing a doctor? My entire life has been one big apology for my sister's inability to deal. I'm tired of it. Am I in the wrong? In some ways, no. In many ways, (laughs) very much so. That's my take. I don't know (laughs) if you're on the same page there.
1: I just think you're really angry at your sister. Huge. Just really... There's a ton of resentment. Yeah. The language in this letter is just really um, electric and charged up with a lot of energy. Um, you, just like the word dumped, the quotes, it's just there's a lot of aggression. And that's not that's not it's not bad to have aggression. It's just like you're feeling very angry. That's the emotion. Um, and so I don't really think that now is a time to be like not to I hope this isn't a cop out, but. Um, it sounds like there's something going on. That's uh, the your second to last sentence, My entire life has been one big apology for my sister's inability to deal. That sounds like something that is something. Maybe you need to take some time to to work through and think about. Um, rather than just making it, I'm not. I'm actually not really sure what to advise about the dog because sounds like a a real mess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think anytime that the solution you propose is the ending of Airbud, you're in trouble. Like <laughs> yeah. she, he he and the like kind of evil clown who I think it was a clown who yeah. had previously owned Airbud, do the same thing where they stand outside and yell, like, here boy. Um, oh that my was,
1: god, you're right.
0: Yeah, that was not good. Um oh, that was I, bleak. I think the place upon which you are steady ground is By kind of any uh, practical understanding of what it means to have a dog, this dog is mine. Um, And the other is my parents particularly have, especially when I was underage and living at home, possibly forced me to um, accommodate my sister's demands uh, under the rubric of her sensitivity or her sadness. Both of those you you have room to stand i understand your complaint i understand your resentment the stuff where it has congealed into rage hatefulness kind of like anti mental health uh sentiment is everything else so yeah you're like you you've got real legitimate complaints and and needs here And then the way you are going about establishing those claims is really damaging. So,
1: yeah, you're not going to feel better about this situation if you get your way on the about the dog. It's not going to change the fact that you fundamentally have this like really deep resentment of the way that I think your it seems like your family dynamic feels like it's worked to you and that's real and that's you know that's a very that's a that's a very real feeling and and i'm sure that there's um a history there but yeah being trying to sometimes it takes time to realize this but like trying especially with a with family stuff but with anyone trying to punish people in real time for stuff that they did historically
0: or that the parents did on their behalf
1: yeah yeah absolutely. That's never going to work, and it's just gonna right. lead to really perpetuating the same cycle where you feel coerced and you so I mean, I'm imagining your sister probably is sensitive, um, but it doesn't really sound like she's crazy. Um, it sounds like she's emotionally expressive. I don't know. I'm
0: right. it's it's, it's a very loaded and demeaning word, right? Like I, it's not a modeator. Nice You can talk about things that your sister has done that has hurt you or things that your parents have done that have hurt you, but you need to stop calling people crazy. And I I actually think you should apologize for saying that. And I know that right now you're in a state where you don't want to apologize to them for anything. um, But like, it's true that you humiliated your sister. And I think you should admit to yourself that you wanted to humiliate her, that that brought you pleasure and satisfaction. You did it on purpose and you wanted to. Um
1: that image was was heartbreaking to me. I was just like gutted by that image of the dog between them and I mean there is like a there's a flare of of sadism in that idea yes. that. I mean maybe and maybe that's how you know things were hand, have been handled in your family like maybe that's what was treated like a fair way to settle right. uh that but it's also interesting cuz like you obviously I mean and this is also, you know, very familiar where you you obviously care a lot about what your family thinks of you you know right. you're you're really upset about the narrative your parents are so you you do want to be close to these people um and this is not the way to do it yes um uh, and it's it might not be as easy as you might not get exactly what you want um from them in terms of recognition of the position you're in about this dog and i.e. like your entire life i think the dog has become uh, stand in for you for all of that, uh, and but you might at least be able to start to. You might at least try to be heard about what you've experienced, mm-hmm. and maybe if you're open to it, then try to uh, have a conversation where there's some kind of compromise about, I don't know, joint custody or something where you both maybe can feel like you're part of a decision making process about what's the best thing to do for this dog.
0: I think that might be a long ways off. I actually think my read is, uh, on this is a little bit more, this person wants and needs a lot of distance from their family. But I will I will basically say this. You say, they don't like that I refuse to roll over. That's actually not what happened. Um, refusing to roll over might have been something like, I hear that. I understand that you're sad and unhappy. This is my dog. I've cared for the dog from the beginning. I'm not going to give him to you. I wish you the best in trying to figure out ways to treat your sadness, but I can't help you with that that would have been not rolling over. What you did was call her crazy and force her to watch the dog run to you so you could say, look, the dog doesn't like you. Um, You are confusing aggression and cruelty with not being a doormat. There are other ways you could have done the same thing without resorting to the showy kind of relationship ending tactics that you deployed. So I would encourage you to maybe see a therapist with the goal of trying to figure out how do I maintain and establish distance and boundaries without resorting to fury and cruelty? Because those things are actually possible. And I want that for you. Don't try to like worry about what your sister's mental illnesses may or may not be. Um, don't call her crazy, um, like if she does or doesn't see a doctor, that doesn't mean she is or isn't depressed or or has some sort of mental illness. People with untreated mental health issues often behave um erratically or in ways that might not make immediate and intuitive sense to other people. It's not necessarily a reason to accuse them of malingering or simply being selfish. So I would, I would really encourage you, like, if you don't have anything constructive to say about your sister's mental health, don't say anything. And um, if you can't figure out a way to interact with your family without resorting to cruelty to establish a boundary, take some time and distance and go away from them, figure out how you might be able to do it in the future, and then um, try again with different tactics. I also hope you can apologize, not for like the fact that you didn't turn the dog over, but the way that you did it. Those two things are different. And I think that would be a meaningful apology, even if it would feel painful. I do think you owe it. Good luck. Please, please, please write back once you've started seeing a therapist. I would really love to hear what kind of alternate uh, tools and techniques uh, you can start (laughs) doing. The subject of our next letter is antisocial roommates. Dear Prudence, I'm a college student living off campus with three other students my age. For various reasons, we've chosen to stay in our apartment rather than go home. Elderly family members, et cetera. I was initially excited about moving in together because we all agreed we'd have a pretty socially active living space. As the semester went on, my roommates were around less and less. I was frustrated they didn't want to interact with me more, but just chalked it up to their busy schedules and tried to move on. Now we're all home 24-7. My roommates constantly hide out in their rooms, and whenever I try to make conversation, they participate for 30 seconds and then go back upstairs. It's depressing. I have pre-existing mental health issues that are being exacerbated by feeling so lonely in an apartment surrounded by people. Is it out of line to explain this to my roommates and ask them to be more social, like having dinner together or something? Or would that scare them off? Please help. Oh, Yeah, I really fell for this letter writer. I'm so sorry. Honey, that
1: that yeah. just sounds
0: really isolating. I, I don't know what's going on with the roommates. It's possible that they're all very depressed and anxious about everything that's going on. And their response has been to kind of hibernate. It's possible that there's some sort of dynamic that the letter writer's not aware of that's that they're upset or angry about. It's possible that the letter writer um, is asking for uh, emotional intimacy or closeness in a way that has scared off the roommates. I don't feel like I have enough details here in this letter to yeah. make any kind of a ruling.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think it, it's really hard without more fleshed out because reaching out or trying to talk can mean so many different things. But I, I would just say without knowing that, um, just as the letter writer says, they they have existing mental health issues, um, like so many of us. And, and like so many of us, they're being exacerbated by feeling lonely um, and, and in an apartment surrounded by people. You're. This might sound uh, pat or cloying, but you're not alone and this isn't going to last forever. And it it's also true that people are having really strong reactions to the situation, especially people who are cohabitating and not feeling like they don't have any space. So I, I would just say for your own peace of mind, maybe things will change with the room. Maybe Danny has some ideas about how to address things directly with them. But I think t- If you can give yourself a little break on trying to answer the question that you seem to be having about there's like a note of sort of like what's wrong with me or how do I fix this uh, social dynamic I'm experiencing. Just maybe give it a little time and, and try to be a little generous with them about that they're trying to protect their needs, hopefully, and that it's not necessarily directed at you in any way. Um, it doesn't sound like they're ganging up and hanging out without you. It sounds like they're retreating and trying to set boundaries for themselves around having privacy.
0: Right. Yeah. So to that end, I would say it's totally appropriate to ask your roommates if they would like to have dinner together occasionally or to say something like, I'd love to see more of you. If there's a night this week that you want to watch a movie together or make dinner together, I would love that. Yes, that's totally appropriate. Where I think you would get into shakier territory is if you were to say, "I have pre-existing mental health issues that are being made worse by my loneliness, on that grounds you need to have dinner with me." I think that's the part where I would say, "Don't do that." Um that doesn't mean you can't name to them that you feel lonely or that it makes dealing with your mental illnesses more difficult. Um, but if if you frame it in such a way that's like, you would be partly responsible for my decreasing mental health if you didn't have dinner with me, that would become, I think, manipulative, even if you didn't consciously want it to be manipulative. So those things I, w- I would address differently. Like if your mental health's not doing great, which makes a lot of sense, um, I would reach out to other friends and family members you don't live with, let them know how you're doing, ask how they're doing. If there's more ways you can ask them to stay in touch with you or do sort of check-ins, do that. If you can have remote conversations with your therapist and or doctor and or psychiatrist or get one of those, if you don't have any right now, all of that would also be good. If it's possible for you to take walks safely right now to try to schedule them, um, whenever you can anything that you know helps you with your mental health do that pursue it absolutely just don't frame that as the justification for have dinner with me
1: yeah that's that's so so true and there's no it's like at the end of the day if they're not doing anything that is really harmful or crossing your boundaries then it's it's really important to remember, I think, for all of us, uh, but in this situation especially, that it isn't anyone else's unfortunately responsibility to socialize with us or give us a certain kind of emotional support. Um, but that doesn't mean I I love the movie and TV idea. That's how I do a lot of my socializing is making people watch movies with me. Um, so I would recommend if you guys can get into that, uh, like. I don't know, weekly movie night thing, that could be good. And if you could get a therapist, if you don't have one already, there's, I've never used them, but there's a lot of those virtual therapist um, services that are out there now. And I think that could really help you for just sort of getting guidance and advice about how to navigate the day-to-day and like, you know, building your own routine um, in a way that's like in this environment, that's both intensely social and super isolating. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I also just like, I I worry that I was coming across too harsh. Like I, to be clear, I'm not getting a note in your letter that suggests to me that you're like looking to manipulate or cajole people. Like all of your feelings and desires make so much sense to me. You're not doing anything wrong. I too, if I were in a situation where I thought I was moving in with people who were planning on hanging out with me a lot and then actually spent all their times in their room, I would feel really lonely and really bad too. So that makes a ton of sense. And I'm sorry. That's a genuine disappointment. I hope if you tell them you miss them and ask for more regular, like, housemate nights, that you're able to get that. Uh, if they're maybe receptive, you can also ask, like, hey, I don't want to catch you at a bad time. I, I know sometimes when I try to uh, say, hey, you seem like you need to go back to your room. So please feel free if I'm ever trying to, like, Engage you in conversation if you're not feeling up to it, or if you're tired, or if you have an appointment that you have to make remotely, you know, you can definitely let me know. Um, and I won't be offended if you say you have to go. Um, but just know that I'm, I'm looking for more contact. So, if by the flip side, if you ever do want to talk to someone, please know that I'm around. That might help too.
1: I think that makes total sense and it's totally normal and understandable to want to have like I'm quarantining with a with a group of people right now and it is I think it's just reminds me how important it is to have those kind of light general social interactions so there's definitely no shame in framing it that way it's just like that's a normal thing to want and a normal thing to be interested in and if they can do that that's great and if not then you've given them the option.
0: Oh, Cecilia, thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest on the show today. One of the other things we have in common just walked into the room. Um, I'll tell her to say hi. <laughs>
1: hi, Grace. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, thank you. Please let me know every squirrel that you see for the rest oh, I of will. the quarantine orders and take care of yourself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was so lovely.
0: Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dear to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401 371 dear That's 3327. You don't need to use your real name or location. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. This to me does not fall into the kind of category, by the way, of questions where it's like you really need to go through the partner whose family this originally is in order to talk about it. Like, I think you have grounds on your own to just say like, Bob, I find this story weird and upsetting. I think you should not have eaten whale. I really disagree with you. You can say that politely. If he gets defensive, you can stand your ground and say like, I hear it. I don't think this is a good story. I wish you wouldn't tell it. Like, That might be an actually useful opportunity for your kids to see an example of two adults disagreeing uh, without saying, like, I can never say anything when Bob tells his whale story because that would be stirring the pot. Like, you're an adult, too. You're allowed to say you object. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudypod